All right. Well, in the spirit of time, we want to go ahead and get started. Uh, I want to thank Brooks and his team uh, for putting this uh, together from an NCETA leadership perspective. And uh, from the questions that I heard earlier, we've got someone from the U.K., so obviously we've already gone global from the North Carolina Technology Association perspective. Uh, my name is Ron Wainwright. As uh, Brooks commented, I'm a tax partner with Cherry Becker and Holland. Uh, for those of you who uh, hopefully know all about us, I'll give you a little brief bio uh, on uh, Cherry Becker and Holland. We are uh, a top 20 CPA firm, national firm, headquartered in Richmond, 24 offices, uh, about 900-plus people, uh, predominantly uh, focused on uh, the southeast, uh, but we are a national CPA firm, really international. And uh, we have a very strong presence uh, with respect to a uh, a large technology industry practice throughout the firm. So uh, we've been involved in NCEDA for uh, a number of years. Uh, For those of you who uh, won uh, the the golf yesterday, either first or second on uh, both courses, hopefully enjoyed the wine. But uh, we've uh, been uh, longtime sponsors of NCEDA and want to thank Brooks and his team for the opportunity to to sponsor this uh, portion of the agenda today. Um, I want to go ahead and uh, really kind of do a a deep dive. I do want to make this, uh, from a uh, moderator perspective, a very interactive. uh, So we're going to go through a series of questions that uh, I've kind of prepared the group for. But I do want to make sure that in the event that uh, we're talking about a topic through one of those questions that you want a deep dive into, we've got Mark with the mic. Just please raise your hand, and I'll recognize you. Uh, we've got an outstanding uh, panel today uh, with respect to this consumer-driven uh, uh, concept of uh, uh, predictive analytics. I thought John's comments earlier were right on, and, and specifically what we'll hear about from the panelists today is how their organization specifically uh, are changing and adapting uh, to the new no, as John uh, mentioned, where you've got a, a consumer that is very intelligent uh, and has a lot of information available to them uh, from the standpoint of uh, by the time he gets, John mentioned by the time he gets home, that happens in my house. My kids already know, you know what's gone on during the day, and they're telling me stuff that I haven't even heard about. Um, so let's go ahead and do a deep dive. What I'm going to ask each panelist to do is introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about their organization, and, and then we'll get started. So, Brian, we'll start with you okay. since you win the center, and we'll go from there. <laughs> Well, thank you. Uh, Brian Buchanan. I lead the IT group at Burt's Bees. been in IT for about uh, 25 years, and really I've worked in big and small companies, so companies like Allied Signal and uh, uh, Nortel Networks and, and Honeywell, but also in small companies. So I help build out an office uh, for a small consulting practice here in Raleigh, uh, but I've, uh, I have owned my own software company. I have really been in and around intra and internet technology since 1999, so uh, have have done a lot both in the commerce space, but also just with with branding pages, um, content management, and site design. Um, uh, you know, as I think about my role at uh, at Burt's Bees, uh, we really support right now about six different e-commerce sites, three international, so one in the UK, one in Canada, and one on, in Australia, uh, and we have uh, three domestic sites: uh, two business to consumer, one for our new brand called Good, and one for our Burt's Bees uh, brand. Uh, we also have a business-to-business site, so for uh, some of our distributors and and partners or small customers who want to 
basically order online. Uh, we do have an engine for that. Uh, Burt's Bees, for those who, who don't know about us, we are a natural personal care company, uh, probably best known for our lip balms. Uh, not ChapStick, please, lip balm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> ChapStick is a brand. It's not, it's not a product. So. Um, and, uh, and, and, but, you know, so lip is definitely a big category for us, but we also are in a number of other categories now, uh, both uh, body and face uh, and uh, outdoor products and, and, and baby products and the like. So uh, look forward to having a great discussion today, and thanks for having me. Mark? Good morning. I'm Mark Wright. I'm a Chief Information Officer for Enmar. So I just have to ask you, how many know who Enmore is? Wow, that's Excellent. great. So you know when you go to the store and take something back, we're probably doing the financial settlement for that return good. You probably know if you go fill a prescription, we're helping those pharmacies get their money from the insurers doing financial settlement. You know if you go cash a coupon, we're doing financial settlement so the retailer gets their money back from the manufacturer. What's probably most relevant to this conversation, though, is going to be that we've been investing heavily for the past two years in digital incentive uh, platforms. So we'll talk a little bit more when we get there uh, about some of the things that Enmar is doing and how to connect to the consumer. Uh, For me personally, I've been at Enmar for almost two years now. I had an early career as a rocket scientist and jet engine scientist working for Pratt & Whitney. I did five startups. That's why I have no hair and a white facial hair. And I'm just uh, really thrilled to be a, a North Carolinian now. Glad to meet you. Fantastic. Jack? Thank you. Good morning. I'm Jack Whitley. I am the Senior VP for e-commerce at Replacements Limited. Uh, I've been there uh, 19 years. I've been involved uh, around online marketing and the website uh, since 1998 when we put out eight static pages and had 1,900 user sessions the first month and were curious about what that meant. Uh, in December, we did four and a half million user sessions, and we are definitely uh, a niche within a niche in terms of uh, hard to find China crystal and silver. The company was started by the owner in his attic 30 years ago. Uh, he was an auditor for the state of North Carolina, and he went out and hunted for China crystal and silver for his own collection on the weekends. Uh, started getting requests, which he put in a recipe box. That was his first database, uh, index cards in a recipe box, and that was less than 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, fr- uh, as, that, as those requests grew, he said, I can make money at this. He told his parents he was quitting his job as a CPA to go to work selling uh, flea market uh, used dinnerware, uh, and they were not excited uh, <laughs> at all. Um, so fast forward, uh, we have uh, 10.5 million customers in our database. Uh, we, we are not the typical cataloger that maybe has ten or 12,000 SKUs. We have 4 million distinct stock-keeping units, uh, 13 million physical pieces, uh, all on one 80-acre campus on I-40. So uh, challenges for us, uh, we would be at the smaller end of the mid-market company range. So how do we manage 11, uh, 10.5 million customers and 4 million SKUs uh, on, a, on a budget that is uh, – that is not a large company budget, so we have large company computing requirements, but we have a smaller mid-market company budget, and we've done a lot of uh, creative things, I think, and smart things uh, uh, to be successful and hopefully get to talk about a few of those today. Well, as you can tell, we've got a very impressive group of uh, panelists with deep experience, and specifically a lot of what we'll talk about is impacting their company from the standpoint of uh, consumer-driven business. Um, The first question I'd like to kick it off with is uh, really for Brian, 
is, Brian, there is a new generation of tech-savvy customers who can do product research and pricing comparison before they ever make a purchase. Talk about the evolution of your customer and how you're using technology to engage them more effectively. Thanks, Ron. So, um, you know, as I thought about this question and uh, heard John speak this morning, uh, you know, a lot of what he talked about, this shift in technology and the way people are operating today, uh, the, the onset of, of smartphones, I've heard stats that smartphones now outnumber computers two to one. So, you know, you have more of those devices out there in the field than you do uh, the, the typical computer. You have iPads and, and tablet computing. It's become very portable. Uh, along with this, you have this new group of people coming up through these millennials, uh, and I have two of them in my house, so I have two teens, uh, much like John talked about. Uh, I think my daughter's record is 12,000 texts in one month, um, so uh, that's our family contribution to the zettabytes in the universe uh, per, per year or per day uh, or per month. So, uh, you know, they're operating differently, right? They, they have grown up with this. I didn't, I didn't grow up with this level of technology, and, and therefore the way they shop and the way they make decisions is very different. And we're hearing this from our customers, too. And our customers are not our consumers. Our customers are the retailers that sell our products. So, uh, you know, some of these uh, retailers are coming to us and say, hey, look, you know, our our stores are becoming showcases for products. People want to buy something, but they want to go see it first. They go into the store. They look at the shelf. They look at all the products. They look at the boxes. They want to touch it and feel it. But then they're on their smartphone, and they're saying, oh, what what, what can I, you know, is this the best price? And, and we're seeing this even play out in some of the statistics. You know, Amazon has 30% of, as of the end of 2011, has 30% of the product searches. Now, these would be product, not total searches. Uh, Google has about 13%. So, uh, you know, when you think about Google as a search engine, you think everything goes there. But Amazon is, is really starting to take a significant percentage of those product searches. And people are out there looking at prices. The other thing they're looking at is, is what's, and what's important to us is the ratings and reviews. And that's, you know, if you've bought an appliance recently, if you've bought a, a computer, if you've bought even a car, uh, there, there's ratings and reviews on just about everything. And Amazon, in a lot of cases, has the most depth and breadth as far as the number of people who have come online and actually rated a product. And 10 to 1, if 30% of people say, hey, this is going to happen if you buy this product, there's a good chance that's going to happen if you buy the product. So it really is telling, and it's, and it's something that's a social, that's social networking, all these people kind of grouping together and putting their, their ratings out on a product is driving different consumer behavior. So from a Burt's Bees perspective, you know, that, that impacts us, and it impacts the way we go to market. Uh, you know, we've seen in, in a couple different categories uh, where e-commerce is really picking up. Uh, really, in the baby business, that total category, about 19% of those sales are done online now. Health and beauty is not as large. It's only about 6%, but that is a growing area where we're seeing e-commerce really start to, to get larger and larger there. Um, and, and so as we've looked at how to react to these trends and how to, how to better get after these uh, tech-savvy uh, uh, consumers, we went to social networking, and we've done a lot within Facebook. Uh, and if you think about it, our brand is not, wasn't built by advertising. We do very little TV advertising, if any, uh, very little print ad, very little radio. It's all word of mouth. And so when you think about social networking and getting out on something like Facebook, that's a perfect venue for us to build our brand because we were built through word of mouth. We know how to do that. About 18 months ago, we had about 90,000 fans on Facebook. 
we got with the marketing department. They started to put some promotions in place, and they actually grew that to 1.1 million now is what we have as of today. Uh, that's a pretty significant number of fans. Certainly, there's other companies that have more, but when you think about the management around that and the evolution that we're going through is, okay, now we got 1.1 million fans. What do you do with that? How do you manage that? And so we're really starting to evolve our, our next uh, kind of stage of thinking about how we engage this group, and that's the hard thing. So with all those wall posts happening all the time, we've begun to take our, our Facebook page and break it into different tabs. You know, uh, um, brand is important to us. People have product questions. Uh, corporate social responsibility is very important to our brand. We give a lot back to the community, so we want to talk about that and we want to have a, a way of talking about that to start to segregate the different conversations and organize it. We've also started to put additional resources behind it because if somebody posts something, whether it's good or bad, you want to be able to answer that post. And you really need to have good and bad posts out on your site so people believe that, hey, when I go through here, it's not all good. I'm seeing some things, but I like the answers I'm hearing in response to where people have problems. So Facebook has been a, a, a great tool for us to begin to get after some of these tech-savvy uh, consumers and build those relationships, and that's really the next step for us. So we, we recently put in place Sysimos, which is a, a listening tool where we can see trends on our brand about whether it's trending positively or negatively, and from that we can, we can react to if it's negative, why is it negative? If it's positive, how do we do more of that to continue to have it be positive? And the other thing we're doing is, is seeing how can we engage this group. Now, since we have this 1.1 million fans, live chat is something we're starting to talk about. So how can we have conversations that we want to bring offline because we want to go deeper with a particular consumer and really gain some insight into how either how they feel about the product, the brand, or some other things that we're doing. Um, so, you know, we're still learning. This is still an evolution for us, uh, but we feel like, you know, for our brand and the, and the approach that we're taking, we understand how that's working and we're building through, continuing to build through uh, word of mouth, just a different set of tools. Uh, and, and we're going to continue to drive in that direction. And, and the thought is, you know, as we learn more and we engage more, that insight data will be able to be turned into how we go to market and how we sell future products. I want to make sure I give Jack and Mark an opportunity to, to make comments on that question around these tech-savvy consumers and having so much information available and, and basically how you're having to react to that uh, consumer-driven, high-tech information, fully loaded with more information than you probably sometimes want them to have on a price comparison basis. So I'll start with Mark. Well, I have to ask you, what do you think today's attention span is for somebody that's out cruising Burt's Bees or something else? Have you seen it going way down? We're everywhere. So part of the challenge that we're trying to help uh, manufacturers like Burt's Bees or, or retailers that sell their product is how do you get them to stop? How do you get them to engage and give them something to get value from? Because if there's nothing in it for me, I'm going to the next, to the next, to the next. I'm going to text my friend, tell them I'm, I'm, I'm bored, I'm not finding anything. But if you can hook them with something that has value like an incentive that if you'll go to this particular store and get Burt's Bees, we're going to give you something. It's worth the trip. So Enmar is investing very heavily in enabling technologies so that you can deliver something of value. I mean, in the old days, you look at early days of the Internet, put up a website. The world will come to your door because you have a website. And then people started figuring out if you don't put something interesting on there and if it stays static, they're leaving. I mean, it's, it's that same story over again. 
If you don't have something to offer that's going to engage them and give them some kind of value, they're probably going to move on unless you got the best price, and then they'll go buy it somewhere. Uh, so at Enmar, we're, we're very focused on how do we enable retailers and manufacturers to engage a, a very short attention span, span consumer and get them to go do something. It's, it's hard. We'll talk some more a little bit about some of the big data and how do you really get to micro-targeting, but it's not easy, is it? Jack, any last thoughts on that uh, question? Yeah, this is good because our business, I think, is really at, at the other end of the spectrum from a business like Burt's Bees or other typical retailers who have five or 10,000 SKUs. That's certainly a lot. We have 4 million, and those 4 million, 80% of those actually are not being made anymore. So we have to go out and find those pieces for customers who've requested them. For that reason, we don't have a lot of price competition in 80% of what we sell. We do carry uh, about 20% of our product is active, uh, but, but the bulk of it, uh, we, we don't have showrooming issues as much as other companies, uh, though uh, we certainly keep our eye on that. The challenge for us uh, is helping folks uh, navigate uh, what we have, and also helping them identify what they have, which is very tricky. Uh, and it's so much different from, from typical cataloging retail. Uh, we do a lot of things to help with that. Uh, one of the books I read early on uh, was by Stephen Krug, Don't Make Me Think. It's a, it's a book about website usability, but it really can apply uh, across a business in terms of information architecture and what you have to do to help, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, folks in the middle of the bell curve uh, in terms of, of cognitive agility, uh, get around and get to the place you want them to get to quickly and do the things you want them to do. Uh, it, that's going to be a challenge no matter what business you're in, whether it's a, whether it's a cataloger or, or a real niche like us. We have an additional challenge around product identification, uh, and uh, taxonomy for what we carry uh, uh, so that it works for, for the millions of people that are, that are contacting us, and I'll have more detail about that shortly. All right. Any questions from the audience? I want to make sure that we're giving you an all opportunity now, and we'll also open the floor up uh, for later. Any questions? All right, I'm going to make Jack do some double duty here. Um, Jack, in an industry where the product or buying experience can be viewed as relatively the same, how are you all utilizing technology to drive traffic, encourage customer loyalty, influence future buying habits, find ways to set products apart from competition, though you're unique? Sure. So the, the legacy of the, of the company, uh, starting in Bob's Attic uh, and the recipe box, uh, is informative. His, his initial reach out to people were through little classified ads in the back of shelter magazines like Southern Living, Architectural Digest. There were a hundred or so of them and he would put the little ads in there and he would get the inquiries and he'd put them on index cards. Uh, and, and the demographic for our business is really uh, skewed towards uh, older females with lots of discretionary income and that is held true even, even through today even though we started to see it move a little bit uh, down uh, the scale in terms of uh, age, even though it's still predominantly female. With the web uh, and with uh, our SKUs, uh, we started to, f to, to figure out, you know what, we have an opportunity here to advertise things that nobody else has, and the web allows us to do it uh, in a very granular way. So we were doing micro-targeting before the, there was micro-targeting. I think 
a lot of folks in here probably remember the uh, article in Wired Magazine by Chris Anderson called The Long Tail uh, when he wrote about uh, not the traditional power curve distribution for sales, but one where the aggregate of your obscure SKUs could equal a lot of, of revenue, and Amazon would be one of the first companies that was illustrative of, of the long tail. Uh, we've had the long tail on dinnerware. Uh, uh, we've built it over time, and so from a, from a driving traffic perspective now, we actually run uh, discrete individual ads for all our SKUs all over the web. We actually have 15 million ad placements on the web right now, and every one of those ads we track a sales component and a cost component and calculate an ROI. So th- those, in- those discrete sales and cost components are written back both to our internal systems so that we can at a glance see at the granular ad level or at the campaign level how we're doing on an ROI basis. And they're also written back to a vendor partner that we use, uh, a company called Efficient Frontier in Mountain View, California, who helps us manage a lot of the online portfolio uh, and actually uh, using portfolio theory, as a matter of fact, not only day parting or month parting or doing seasonal placement, but actually looking algorithmically at how certain ads perform when other ads are near them or near them in a rotation or before or after them. So uh, we, have, we, have a, we have a business that is, would be perceived as very staid, you know, a, replacement dinnerware, but we actually uh, use uh, some very uh, uh, very hard <laughs> and complex uh, technologies to, to, number one, get out there, uh, number two, uh, get the results we need, and number three, do it without, uh, without breaking the bank. I'm also a corporate VP. I'm an officer, so I don't have the ability to just go out there and spend money and not worry about the... Uh, the uh, profitability at the end of the of the month or the year. So uh, these things uh, they have to work, and uh, it, it's very easy in micro targeting or any large reach campaign to run up a big bill uh, without snagging the customers and the orders. And we have to be uh, really smart about that. And again, um, it, it it's a landscape that continues to change. So uh, and we have to we have to keep all our antenna up on a regular basis around that. Brian, Mark, any other comments or thoughts on that topic? Great. Any questions from the audience? Well, then let me kind of follow up uh, another question, Jack. Is you know you, you talked about the mass of data and the SKUs and yep. and the the marketing. I mean, how is that? How are you all balancing the the IT spend against the needs uh, of the consumer and what they're driving you to kind of react to? Very carefully. Thank you. <laughs> It is, it is a, it's a constant challenge. And so one of the metrics we use, and I'm sure our company is not different from many other companies, even though we have a different business model and we're in a, we're in a very tightly defined niche. Uh, we have internal systems and internal IT requirements, and then we have the web. And the web got cranked up uh, and sort of exploded and went off on its own while we had uh, a different set of technologies for internal systems. So we are, and it is not easy, but we are gradually trying to manage the convergence of those. We are, we are, we are not there yet. Uh, but in terms of resource allocation, we do our own benchmarking for the website, and what we basically look at are our cost per page served 
and our revenue per page served. And we try to make sure we fully load uh, that cost per page served. So if I look at my develop web developers, online marketing, even the customer service people to respond to the inquiries because the easier the site is to use, the fewer of those ad hoc emails and inquiries are going to throw off to your customer service folks. But if we look at benchmarking in the web and for resource allocation purposes, we might spend a half a half cent per web page served and serve 25 to 30 million pages a month, but we'll do 15 cents in revenue per page served uh, in the summer and 32 cents uh, revenue per page served during the holidays. And during the holidays, our cost per page served does not increase. So we've got some really scalable ways to manage uh, multi-million user session, uh, concurrent user session uh, traffic, along with a very high SKU count uh, and a very uh, uh, diverse inventory. That, that economic, uh, economical way to manage a real provisioning challenge for us for a small, smaller company uh, frees up some, some resources actually for internal systems. And we also have a challenge in our business in that the inventory and the distribution center does not lend itself to automation in terms of pulling, picking, and packing. I mean, it's all fragile. 80% of it uh, came to us in a box wrapped up in newspaper, and uh, there's no UPC or product schema. We had to develop all of that. So that's a resource-intensive area for us. So we have had to uh, – we've, we've become smart on the web uh, because we had to be. Uh, and um, uh, those – the, the, the assessment around what part of IT resources go to the web and what part go to internal systems, quite frankly, it's been heavily skewed to internal systems. But we leverage those two in many ways to help with our website. It, it, it's, it, that's a great question and, and one that we, we work on every day. Sounds like every hour, kind yeah, of balancing yeah, it. Yeah. Any questions in regards to that? Well, uh, Jack, I want to make sure in the world of online advertising, Companies can utilize social media and analytics to micro-target their customers and deliver customized ads specific to them. What platform and strategy has been most effective for your business? Uh, so if I uh, – Google has, is by far um, uh, the biggest absolute producer. We're finding pockets of value uh, in places like Amazon.com. We actually did a program with Amazon where we did uh, an XML SOAP implementation and put our entire catalog at Amazon's website for three years. But we found that we were doing larger order sizes on our own site, and there were other strategic sort of drawbacks to being at Amazon longer term, so we pulled back. They did tell us, by the way, that they had never seen anything like our inventory and our 4 million SKUs, and these are the people that have you know, millions of books. So they were, they were taken aback. Uh, in terms of effectiveness, I would put Google, and when, when, when folks say Google, they think of the one paid AdWords search program that, that many folks see. Google has a couple dozen programs now that are very powerful. Uh, we also use uh, shopping engines uh, that are effective. We're doing uh, behavioral retargeting now uh, in a... Uh, in a very structured way to, to, to measure that. Um, social media for us uh, is interesting. Uh, we're out there. Um, I go to conference after conference, and I keep asking folks uh, that do it what they're doing, um, how they're measuring it. Um, uh, I watch other large e-tailers that don't use it uh, and, and try to understand why they do not. You don't see Apple or Amazon doing a lot of 
of proactive things there. What I, where I do see social media helping us uh, is uh, really it's just become the digital equivalent of folks talking over the fence in their backyard or seeing each other at the shopping center. The more orders we get out there and the more happy people we make, the more lift we see from social because they get out there and tell people about it. What has been less effective for us on social is trying to inject ourselves into uh, conversations between people talking about their vacation or whatever. So I think for different companies, there are different um, uh, strategies. Uh, certainly, it doesn't cost a lot to be there. We have staff, and, and we manage it. But another thing that's important to distinguish for us is we set lifetime values for customers that come in and register their patterns with us. So if somebody signs up and registers their pattern, I know they're going to be worth $122 to me, and I know what the gross profit's going to be. What we, what we were finding happening with like buttons and other things is folks were not filling out the form, and they were clicking the like button. And uh, the engagement for people that click the like button on a percent basis uh, was not enough to offset losing registrations. So we, we, we did it differently, uh, and we pursue uh, social media signups after customers have registered with us for their patterns. And that seems to – that's been a good, a, good, a good change of course for us in terms of the analysis that we've done. But, but I would say in terms of effectiveness, um, uh, Google is scarily effective – um, but you need to have the right partners to make it work at scale. Uh, shopping engines, uh, important. Uh, social media, uh, important. Uh, we do uh, large display networks uh, at the right price. Uh, again, all of it requires analytics, though. And if we weren't writing back to our internal systems and doing the discrete ROI, it would not work. I don't think you can do ROI assessment at the campaign level uh, in some of these uh, larger online venues, especially the ones that are bid-based, uh, and make it. And you definitely can't do it with spreadsheets. Uh, you've got to have uh, a smart, savvy uh, uh, partner uh, or a platform uh, to help you get that done. Mark, I know you commented earlier when you talked about the importance at Inmore, and this is where you're investing a lot of dollars. Can you also kind of expand on Jack's comments of what you all are doing there to make sure you're getting that, that consumer? Sure, and I'll... I'll say up front, there's always two or three different definitions for any given term. So when you say micro-targeting, I think you're thinking of a particular way to go and put a lot of different inventory in very specific places. When we think of micro-targeting, we're thinking more of, I've got full basket data from millions of consumers, and I've got CPG clients who want to reach them. It's a different kind of micro-targeting. And so we're... um, we're investing and learning and hiring and um, building up a solution to make it easier for a, a manufacturer or a retailer to make sense of a very large volume of data and start reaching to smaller and smaller and smaller groups of consumers. Uh, IBM's doing a lot of research on ultra personalization. It's getting down to the level of one consumer. Um, we're not there yet, but certainly headed toward a um, solutions that we're bringing to market for our retail and, and brand customers that will allow them to sift through and analyze and make sense of huge volumes of shopper data and then go after specific campaigns targeted to their likes and, and needs and what they're likely to engage with you in. It takes um, a different kind of technology. Our presenter from EMC, I think, was was bringing some very good things to light, and it's the kind of investments that it takes to reach that kind of capability. If you want to spray and pray uh, printed FSIs for the rest of your life, you'll continue to get the kind of results we've seen for the past few decades. 
if you want to get a different kind of return, it takes a different kind of architecture. It takes a different kind of hardware, software. It takes different kind of scientists and people to be able to, to execute that kind of thing. Brian, I want to make sure I also follow up on the micro-targeting. I know you mentioned that and just some of the things you're seeing at Bird's Bees. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we, we don't do a lot of ad targeting. If we do, it's through Google. As, as Jack said, it's, you know, that seems to be the best engine. We haven't had a lot of luck, if any, with uh, uh, doing uh, targeted ads or ads through Facebook. So that's not something we pursue there. We really look at Facebook as our, our engine to engage customers and consumers at a different level, um, not to advertise or not to sell. Uh, within our websites, we do uh, run a tool by the name of Core Metrics, which does have uh, an analytics engine which allows us to say, hey, shoppers who bought this are, are also interested in this. And that has been very helpful for us as we begin to put that into play. Uh, that has uh, helped us boost some sales. because, And, and it's amazing what, what it will bring into the basket or what it will suggest is not the types of things that you would suggest. If you were sitting down and looking, hey, this person bought three baby products, we're going to suggest a couple other baby products. Well, the core metric engine may go in a totally different direction based on, on actual consumer behavior. So um, that, has been, uh, that has been helpful for us, um, but certainly aren't doing the, the targeted ads and, and the things at, at the level that Jack uh, is doing um, at replacements. Any questions from the audience? Yes, sir. Yeah, so we do use Twitter also. Uh, Twitter is uh, it is not as, as used as Facebook, but we do engage consumers at that level. And certainly if we're out at an event or we're doing a, a, a marketing event, either a new product la launch or what have you, we will launch to, you know, we'll, we'll send out something uh, through Twitter to, to anybody who's following. Um, I think one of the, the, the new kind of social media engines we're beginning to look at is uh, uh, Pinterest, which is basically P with interest, right? And uh, it's more of a, a picture-based way of navigating and engaging and almost a referral engine. So that one's kind of got our interest. It's, it's something we've just started to put our toe in the water on just to, to kind of see, you know, is that the engine of the future? Is that how people are going uh, to think about refer referrals in the future? I think Twitter, uh, for us... Uh, the demographic for Twitter is definitely uh, more in the uh, 18 to 30 year I mean, skewed that way. Also, I think I recently read that one half percent of all the Twitter users are responsible for 50 percent of the tweets. So it is it is um, it's one of those things that looks huge, but uh, it has to be properly managed. And the other part for us, and again. We are different, and we have a different. We have an older demographic. We we have the sign up process for Facebook and Twitter after our registration process or order process. So, uh, and we get to watch and see how many people after they order uh, elect to sign up for it to, by clicking the button. And and for Twitter, not that many are doing it. And and uh, and we're okay with that. We're tweeting every day, and uh, we sign up as many people uh, as as want to sign up. Uh, uh, I read Steve Jobs' biography, uh, and because he is he is a person that took the principles that Stephen Krug articulated ten years ago, 
and made a trillion dollars with it. I mean, he really understood that usability is the most important thing. It, it trumps everything. You obviously have to have the technical underpinnings to be there, uh, but you have to, have, you have to understand uh, that, that folks want less complexity, not more. I think we continue to wrestle with how many messaging channels are the right number of messaging channels for our customers. And when we do get their attention, we don't want to make them burn energy in their cognitive gas tank too quickly. One of the principles that Krug articulates so well is everyone has a finite amount of cognitive energy to burn every day. And uh, in terms of attention spans, they're getting shorter because folks are having to burn more and more and more and change gears more and more times. So uh, it, 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 these, are, these are great questions. You know, this is just one little tiny slice of a lot of the questions we have to answer and ask ourselves around, around social and how we use it. Um, it, it is uh, your, 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 your consultants, I'm sure, are going to help you figure out the right solution for you. Um, we, we, we continue to test. The other thing that struck me about jobs is at the end of the day, he went with what he thought was the right thing for his particular customer set, and he proved right. And, and a great example of that is you hear so much from various vendors and pundits about, about site, website search, site search on your website, how important it is, and just how you know, it's just so important that you're going to go out of business if it's not perfect. And if you've been to Apple's website in the last four or five months, they blacked it out. You still got the little magnifying glass, but they actually turned the little white box black. So you can't really see it in the nav bar. And I'm confident that they're testing that. They were having larger ticket sizes when people had to browse a site more versus searching to a discrete detail page for one item. We had the exact same experience at Amazon. Our order sizes were 50% smaller because Amazon insisted on showing detail pages for our product. When on our own site, we show all the pieces in one pattern on one page. We don't break it out into detail pages. 50% difference in order size. So, but a consultant or maybe a pundit, I shouldn't say consultant. Uh, I don't, a pundit might tell you, well, you're nuts. You know, you need, to, you need to have a detail page. But it's not always what it seems, and you have to apply the information you get from your experts uh, through the lens of your own experience in your business. I think you bring up a very interesting dimension to it, that it's not just good data scientists we need to go find, but it's good social scientists as well. Not social media scientists, but people who understand and can help you discern how, how pervasive will your consumer allow you to become? Is it okay that they know everywhere you are and everything you buy and everything you're interested in? And how far can you go and be effective before you turn them off and they no longer want to engage with your brand, whether you're a manufacturer or a retailer. Because I think as you, as you start looking at um, how much data you can actually collect about someone and what you can do with it, the, the data scientists can say there's all kinds of possibilities, but there's got to be some constraint of what's going to be appropriate to, to not disenfranchise your, your client. If every time I mention your name, you show up on my... Facebook page or my Twitter account, after a while, I'm not going to be real happy about that. Now, I may have a different tolerance than somebody else. What does your consumer base tolerate? Excellent point. Yes, sir. Mark? So staying on the social media theme, um, 
quick question. Um, obviously, social media is a two-edged sword, right? So it's a great avenue for referrals and, and getting the word out there, but it's also a fantastic avenue for expressing frustration and, um, and discontent or malcontent or whatever you want to call it. Um, I remember years ago hearing numbers that my memory will fail me, but it was something, if I have a positive experience, I might tell three people. If I have a negative experience, I might tell 13 people. The, you know, the numbers may not be right, but relatively speaking, they're, they're there. Um, so what are you guys doing in terms of that reputation management um, and, and with those social media technologies? Is it an active strategy for you? Um, tools, process? Um, you know, I know I've recently read about Whirlpool is trying to take every negative comment that they find out there offline to a direct conversation with that consumer and try to do problem resolution with that consumer. And, and it's dramatically changed some of their customer satisfaction ratings and, and perceptions, if you will. Uh, so uh, you know, are you doing any of those types of active programs? Uh, what's happening and how has that game changed for you because of these uh, social media phenomena? Jack? Brian? Uh, so it's a great question, and these questions have so many facets to them, it's easy to, 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 to get off track. But to stay focused on your question, we, if we see uh, – I've actually had a concern that Facebook was going to become this unstructured conduit for customer service, uh, which is not running through our CRM system inside our company uh, and – with ticket numbers and other things that we need to efficiently process customer inquiries, whether they're compliments or, or requests for service. I think the, one of the first things social makes you do is be honest with your policies and make sure that you don't have anything that is uh, systemically causing a problem for people. We have very generous return policies. We're lucky to be in a business that uh, when we find the stuff people are looking for, they start crying or something. I mean, they're so happy. It's unbelievable. We don't, we don't have collections you know, we just, it's, uh, it's an amazing business. Uh, it's complex, but it's, uh, it's really neat. Um, we do have staff that monitor the comments. Um, uh, thankfully, we haven't had um, a workflow issue with that yet. I certainly read about various of the CRM companies that are trying to figure out how to take those comments and run them back through proprietary or packaged CRM systems. We, I'm, I'm sorry, through, uh, I guess, SAP or, or whoever. Um, Salesforce, uh, and, and some people are doing that already. We have internally developed CRM for a lot of reasons, so we're going to have to manage that differently. I will say that there's also an issue around identifying the gadfly uh, versus the legitimate customer, uh, and uh, if you can get into a public back and forth, it winds up being not constructive. So um, to answer your question, we monitor those comments. We don't delete the bad ones uh, arbitrarily so that we don't have them in there. Uh, we do respond to customers, but we will not get into uh, uh, a public back and forth. Uh, and what we've also found in many cases, a lot of the complainers are not in our database. They haven't made a purchase. Uh, and um, uh, we try to get them in there if we can resolve their problem, but um, we're not being driven by that. I think the challenge is going to be, uh, as for our company, if more customers use that for feedback, um, do we systemically, you know, how do we, how do we tie to Facebook to systemically manage it? I'm not sure what the answer is yet. We just don't have a lot of them driving us to do it yet. For us, you know, we, we have um, uh, a number of people who manage our Facebook page, and, 
and there are handoffs uh, within the organization, as Jack pointed out, into customer service when we have to resolve a complaint or into uh, just the, the product, uh, the folks who manage the products, we call them uh, category managers, to make sure they're getting the information they need if it's a complaint or, or a compliment. So there is there are processes around that that we've had to build, and really that has scaled over the last 18 months with so many more folks on, you know, as fans within Facebook. Uh, I think, uh, you know, the other thing that we've learned is, and, and the negative impact that it can have is millennials are very loyal to their network. And they built these networks because they grew up with Facebook and they've grown up with these tools. And so if, if you see someone within a millennial who's not happy with the product, 10 to 1 it is influencing their friends, at least their inner group of friends, and, and could have a, a wider halo effect depending on how unhappy they are and how, how much they want to they wanna harp on it. Uh, so we, we do take that seriously. We use Sysimos as a, as a tool that we use for social listening, and we do look for trends within our brand, either negative or positive, and we try to address those and understand why uh, and try to reach out to those consumers and, and resolve those complaints uh, where we can. But we also want to get uh, great quotes that we can use from people who are very happy with our product that's driving uh, po- positive uh, results, and, and we want to understand what they like. So, again, we can do more of that. But it's, it's something you have to manage. It's very unstructured. Uh, again, we, we've had to make changes in our Facebook page to split it out so that we can organize conversations and really try to group people with different types of, of, of uh, either compliments or, or uh, just comments they want to make. And uh, we expect we're going to have to do more of that and, again, maybe even move to a live chat uh, model so that real-time we can pull uh, those conversations we don't want as a back-and-forth in public offline but still be able to engage with that uh, consumer or potential consumer and answer any concerns they have. Trust me, when our site goes down and we have problems with our e-commerce site because we're running a promotion, there are folks out on Facebook saying, what the heck is going on, right? And a lot of those get handed off to customer service, and we come back around with you know, uh, either free product or trials or something to try to help uh, get them back on board. So it is a challenge, and it's something we have to manage. Mark, any additional thoughts? Well, just one other thought. We're primarily a B2B company, so we're not directly engaging with consumers. But we still, um, I, I would say we're in the early stages. We're a Salesforce shop, so we're using Radian 6 as our social listener. And it's, it's a different kind of conversation. We're still out there paying attention to what our business customers are saying or, or talking about. But they tend to talk in different places. I mean, most of our customers aren't out on Facebook talking to their friends about their business partner. They're, they're more likely to be in, in LinkedIn or other kind of social avenues that, that we're listening and engaging on. I think we had a question back here, Mark. Um, I've, we've talked a lot about usability and social in the last few questions. Um, connected with that is, is the high usage of mobile devices. And I did a quick search, and I didn't see that you guys had any direct mobile applications. Um, what are your thoughts on the use of mobile um, inside the businesses that you have? I can speak to that first. So our demographic, again, is going to be skewed to older, older users. What we see in our web traffic right now is about uh, 9% of it now per, on a monthly basis are mobile sessions, and roughly 70% of those are tablets. And our conversion rate is actually about 50% higher on tablets than it is on, for folks on desktop. And we didn't have to do anything to our site. 
We stayed very low-level standards with the site. Um, we've kept a real focus on page load times, which are really important. And I want to make a comment about the like button and page load times in just a second and an experience we had there. But uh, as far as our customers, uh, and the, the majority of them are using tablets if they're using mobile, and they're actually converting at a higher, at a higher rate. From an advertising perspective, our ad campaigns online, the big scalable ones, uh, the intent to purchase uh, when folks are using mobile is pretty low, but the CPs, the costs are very low, so we're there, and they're information gathering sessions. With tablets, the intent to purchase is higher, but the costs are still low uh, at this point because there's not a lot of people out there competing for advertising in the tablet space. You would think there would be, but there are not. So we're really reaping a windfall there uh, around uh, low cost for tablet campaigns, but higher conversion rates than the person sitting at their desktop at work or wherever uh, when they're browsing our site. Uh, The phone aspect for us, uh, and and I don't like when mobile, when the tablets and the phones are lumped together because they are different beasts. Uh, The prospecting 4 million pieces on a phone screen uh, presents a lot of unique challenges for us. And what we're doing right now is we're watching our conversion rate on phones. Believe it or not, folks are pinching and swiping and expanding, and they're ordering at about the rate from us that they're ordering from other e-commerce merchants. And we haven't done anything for the site. Applications versus uh, web. Uh, I I just keep reading and hearing from Source after source, if you don't need to use the accelerometer uh, or, or any of the native phone features, try to do uh, a web-based uh, app if you're going to do one. The other challenge with apps is I think a lot of folks in here probably know the things get downloaded and they get used six times in the first month and then five times in the next month. And then in month 12, they get used once. And in 24 months, they're part of a 500 bookmark list that used to be what your browser bookmarks looked like. And so you're investing all this money and keeping up with all the different API changes. Uh, and uh, I don't see that. Uh, for games and music, absolutely. Uh, retailers uh, with uh, smaller shops and budgets, it's going to have to be HTML5. Obviously, HTML5, HTML5 is not there yet. Uh, but if you have, a, if if we have a strategy, uh, it's going to be it's going to be in that direction. But what we're really excited about is the fact that the tablet browsers so far have have stuck to standards uh, around what we have done so far, and we haven't had to do anything. Uh, and we're seeing uh, some 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 real success there. Uh, we do have we do have work to do uh, for the for the phone screen, and we'll have to figure that one out shortly. <laughs> Brian, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so we're, we're in the process of developing our mobile site now. It uh, should be uh, released here um, shortly. Um, but really, you know, for us, it's about uh, product research and, and probably the only app, and I don't think it's going to be an app from the standpoint of something you download to the phone, but more a web-based app would be a store finder. You know, where can you go find our product? Um, we will have the ability to, through the phone to, to have e-commerce happen, uh, but that's not really the focus right now for the mobile for that for that mobile site, the the the, the phone site. So we'll we'll see how that goes. We'll see what those conversion rates look like, and if we need to invest more, then we'll look to invest more there. So if you look at inmore.com, you're not going to find a mobile site. If you go to bigzfoods.com, which is our demo site, you'll find a um, mobile phone optimized website for coupon shopping. 
And for, for what we're helping our manufacturers and, and retailers do, that's critical because our platform enables you right up to the last second in the lane for you to acquire another coupon and get it applied right there in your transaction. So it is critical to have that reach in the store because most people aren't taking their iPads to the store yet, except maybe some of the super geeks. But you'll have your phone there. And the easier we make it to engage the customer, the easier it is for them to find that offer and acquire it before they check out or even in the process of checking out. It's critical to have it right there. So we're putting a lot of um, uh, time, research, and money into optimizing that experience. But it's not an app. I mean, a lot of the same things that that Jack's saying or or we're finding the same true. We can deliver a good experience and make it easy to use and engage the consumer with uh, mobile-optimized uh, web. Any other questions? Well, I've got one last question for the panel, and I'll, I'll start with Brian and, and then uh, ask Pat and, uh, to kind of comment on, as well as Mark. Many companies are developing online communities of their employees, partners, and customers to collect feedback that drives product development. Talk about who you engage in your community, how you connect them, and how you organize all that information collected to make effective decisions around product development. Thanks. Uh, so so uh, about uh, probably two years ago, Burt's Bees decided that we wanted to try to take a different approach to some of our, our research that we wanted to get done. And so we started looking at building an online community. This would be a closed online community of consumers or potential consumers that we could run research projects with. And this, is, this wasn't done in, in a way to replace the traditional focus groups and other research we might, might want to do. It was really done uh, to, to basically find a cost-effective, fast uh, research vehicle um, where we could test a number of different things, both strategic and tactical from a marketing perspective. So knowing that we didn't have a lot of expertise in this space, we decided to look for a partner that it wasn't just a technology or tool, but also the partner that could bring some of that uh, expertise to us. Uh, about 12 months ago, we landed with uh, Vision Critical uh, and, and have had the community built out since about August of, of last year. Uh, there's 2,200 uh, consumers in that, uh, in that community. And we, we got those community, uh, or those community members from our uh, email marketing uh, database, so we know there's a skew there. We know that the data that we interpret is skewed towards people who have either know Burt's Bees or have used Burt's Bees products before or have registered to be part of our emailed marketing database. But it was a much lower-cost way of recruiting a group of that size versus just going out into the U.S. and trying to recruit members to be in this community with all the different segmentation that we wanted to get. So it was just a, a, a great way of starting the community, and it's a two-year commitment. So after two years, we could see a turnover. We might reach out and get outside of the email marketing database. But <clears throat> so far, we've had a lot of success with this particular group. Um, since August, we've run about uh, 20 different research projects, uh, six being tactical, 14 being more, or excuse me, six being strategic and 14 being more tactical uh, this is everything from ad testing to uh, marketing communications to uh, pre- and post-launch of new products. And the feedback we've gotten from the community has been great. The people who have participated in the engagement level we've had has been beyond our expectation. Uh, the feedback we have gotten are around 
the, the, the consumer saying, hey, wow, this is awesome. I get to have input into what that new product is going to do or how it works or what the marketing is going to be. And when we take those suggestions and actually incorporate it into the plans, you know, they see their suggestions coming to life uh, in those marketing programs, and it really just builds additional engagement. So uh, we've, had, we've had great success with the uh, community. <clears throat> I think we have had some lessons learned, though. You know, as, as you build out these communities, in order to get engagement, there is an ex- expectation that as people participate in these projects, there is, it's almost a pay-for model. So uh, whether that's free, free product back to the people who participate at a high level or, you know, 5 or $10 uh, gift cards, which doesn't sound like a lot, but you start building a community of 2,200 or 3,000, that can become expensive over time. Uh, so, so that's one thing to think about. Uh, we also found that you, you really need people who understand insights, consumer insights, and how to do that analytics, because the questions and how you ask those questions, they build on top of each other. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to build more and more knowledge and, and understanding of your consumer. So, for instance, if we run a research project that say, um, you know, we want to test out a new shampoo and we send out shampoo samples, one of the things that we'll want as feedback is maybe hair type. So maybe consumer A has, uh, you know, long, fine hair and consumer B has heavy, curly hair. Well, we want that data and that can be used later on in another research project and we can begin to build our knowledge of this group of consumers. And not to mention the questions themselves can build on each other. If not asked uh, correctly, you can get into situations where you go to do research and you get this contention of, well, is it A or is it B? We can't really tell because we didn't ask the questions, right? So having people to help you with that, if you don't have that internally, is a must. Um, and really the third thing is you have to understand that it's does, it is much like we talked about with Facebook. It takes people to manage this. If you're going to have an, a community, even a closed one, you have to engage with these people. You have to make sure that it's active. New content has to go out on a regular basis. You know, those 20 projects that we run, that's four a month. So that's one a week. So there's, there's definitely work there to build the, the surveys and the questions, to, to analyze the data afterwards, to make sure that uh, you're pushing the community to engage and to be part of those surveys, uh, and that you've got a good segment of people within that database that, that's going to give you the information that you're looking for. Jack, Mark, any last thoughts on that? Uh, so we, we do uh, more traditional surveys. We survey folks uh, post-order who call our call center and don't order on the website. Uh, we survey folks uh, post-order on the website, uh, and then we send email-based surveys. We do not have any formal community in social media right now or a closed community. One of the things that uh, we – an interesting note, too, I, and many of you have probably read the, the uh, Jobs biography. He was really not – uh, into spending money for lots of market research. I found it very interesting. He said whenever he did it, the two things that came back were, I want more and I want it cheaper. And the other thing he said was, consumers don't really know what they want next. I know what they want. And so not everybody can, 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 can be that prescient, but I just found it interesting that he continued to grow so robustly and he didn't do a lot of the formal listening uh, that, that, we, that we, we're doing it. So we take all of the, uh, the listing that we get from surveys, and we hear from customers, I want more, and I want it cheaper, and I want free shipping. And it's just, it just never changes. And um, the challenge for us is we have customers on file for an array of 336,000 different dinnerware patterns. 
So a person on file for Nortaki Maple may be screaming that the prices are too high, while the person on file for Franciscan says, your prices are great, I love you. And that variance spans our product. And we have to be very careful that we understand that if we don't have the confidence intervals that we need, that we could be making mistakes and making strategic changes uh, based on uh, making poor assumptions around, around survey and comments. I think it's very important to do it, and no matter what vehicle or, 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 style or method. Uh, but I think, again, at the end of the day, you have to look at it through a lens of your unique business and what makes sense for it. Any last thoughts there? No, we're, we're a B2B business, so we use the traditional sure. advisory groups. We have 1,700 customers, not 17 billion customers. So it's a, it's a different kind of listening, right. but it's still very important to listen. Very good. Um, well, I would love to open the floor up for questions, but in the spirit of uh, being respectful of everybody's time and, more importantly, uh, making sure that Brooks is happy on, on the agenda, that we're staying on task, um, on behalf of the moderator, um, I want to thank uh, everyone, Brian and Jack and Mark, did a phenomenal job. Thank you so much. Appreciate it.